traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Economist. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the business affairs editor. And this week on Money Talks, is your quinoa habit hurting farmers in Peru and Bolivia? Sumaya Keynes joins us later to discuss this quinoa quandary. If the market for quinoa has just fundamentally been changed, then these farmers can't compete on price anymore. First, though, the European Commission is due this week to release its thinking on how to regulate the digital economy. The Commission is specifically looking at online platforms, which cover social networks like Facebook, online marketplaces like Amazon and search engines like Google. As these powerful firms gain an ever-growing share of their markets, some worry they will use that power to stifle competition. John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, is here now to tell us more. And John, let's start with what an online platform is. Can you define it for us? Well, I think it's best to just first define what a platform is. And I'm going to use an example of an offline one, a well-established platform, which is the payment card system. So in the early 1950s, a gentleman called Frank McNamara started the Diners Club. The problem he had in getting the thing going in the first place was that obviously he wanted merchants to accept his card, but the only way that merchants would accept his card if there was lots of people that wanted to use it, but the only way that people would ever use the card if merchants had accepted it. So he had the, the classic chicken and egg problem. The way he solved this was to give away his Diners card to a few hundred wealthy socialites in Manhattan, uh, and then having got the consumers on board, he persuaded 14 upscale restaurants in Manhattan to take it. So essentially, the, the solution to the problem was to give it away to one side of the of the market and then persuade the other side that there were plenty of people who would come to your restaurant to use it. The Diners Club card was essentially free to the first users, and Mr McNamara took 7% of the restaurant tab as a way of covering his cost because he guaranteed payment. This is an example of a platform in two senses. One, it has a matchmaker function that brings together two distinct sorts of economic agents or, or entities, on one side merchants, on the other side consumers. And it brings them together to facilitate transactions between the two of them. And the second thing is that, and, and characteristically, generally one side pays more for the transaction than the other. So there's the, the costs are weighted onto one side of the platform and not on the other. And if you think about the online platforms, that's, it's the same setup. You have, for example, Google, where you and I can make a Google search. It doesn't cost us anything except the sort of shadow price of giving away information about our preferences. And it's the advertisers that pay for Google's profits and for the operating costs. It acts as a matchmaker and it charges one more than the, the other. Those are the characteristics of a platform, whether online or offline. Now, the Commission is, is producing its thinking this, this week. And what are we expecting to, to see as the sort of areas that, that they're likely to concentrate on? What is it that, from a regulator's perspective, gives, is likely to give them pause? Oh, well, the disquieting thing about platforms is that almost by definition, the more people you get on either side of the platform, the more people want to use it. So to go back to the Diners Club example, it started off with 14 restaurants. Within a very short amount of time, it had several thousand restaurants. I mean, there's exponential growth in these things, even in the offline world. 
And so there's a kind of network effect, which means the more people that are on the network, the more people want to be on the network. And that tends to, not in all cases, but in many cases, leads to sort of dominant players. So you think of Google in search, Amazon in online marketplaces and so on. So you have essentially monopolies that grow up pretty quickly that have a lot of market power. And that's usually disquieting to, to regulators. The problem is, is that that these sort of two-sided platforms, these platforms are different to standard monopolies in as much as their pricing is different. So usually the place, the, the side of the market where they have the market power, let's say Google in, with, with search, is actually the place where they don't actually charge. So it's very difficult to, to sort of come up with a, be disquieted about someone that's gouging consumers when they're not charging consumers at all. Uh, and you see that similarly in, in other sort of platforms. And if you try to regulate any side of the market, one side of the market, you can have implications for the other side of the market. So it makes it, first of all, they're disquieting because of the, the potential for monopolization. But secondly, they are difficult to regulate because it's hard to know what kind of impact uh, an intervention will have. You also mentioned that, that consumers are not getting gouged, but you also talked about a shadow price for their data. Right? In some senses, we are we are transacting with these with these platforms, the likes of Google and Facebook, etc. We just don't quite know what the terms of trade are, and presumably that's where we'll see some some focus this week. Yeah, I mean we we're paying a price. You know, think of a free newspaper, which is another platform. You're bringing readers and advertisers together. The readers don't pay anything, but they do pay something. They pay in their attention, which is what the advertisers are after. Now, in, in those circumstances, when I give over data to Google or whether I give my attention to a free newspaper such as the Metro on the, on the London Underground, it's not clear what the, whether that price is a fair price. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's concerning to regulators for, for that regard. But more worrying, I think, is that in the online world, there's a possibility, in fact, that um, big platforms become entrenched and actually start to dominate other sorts of markets as well. So if you think about data, actually having a lot of data on consumers can be a barrier to entry to the next would-be Google. And so it's actually very difficult to challenge Google because it has this enormous advantage. And regulators are starting to think about whether data should be portable that other companies should be able to have access to the kind of data that the, the big online platform giants have in order to make the market more competitive so that you have greater innovation and so on. And there's another barrier to entry, which is mergers. Big platforms buying up small competitors before they start to blip on the radar of, of antitrust authorities, but potentially taking out competition. Yes, that's the other big disquieting thing. The sort of laissez-faire approach to sort of big monopolies is to say, well, someone will come along and take them out eventually. So you don't have competition in the market because one company tends to dominate, but you have competition for the market. So there's somebody out there is trying to come up with a, a new mousetrap that's going to displace Google or, or Amazon or somebody else, a better way of doing business that means they become the next guy that comes along. The problem in the current circumstances is that the online giants generate so much cash that they're able to make acquisitions of small startups before they can even develop into, into potential competitors. And there's a recent House of Lords report that cites uh, quite a disquieting statistic, which is that Google has made something like 187 acquisitions. The, the concern is that these are what's called, what's known in the, in the jargon as a shootout acquisition, that essentially Google takes out a very small startup that could grow very quickly into something that might challenge it. That's the concern, and the concern is also it's not just Google, but with other companies as well. And it's very difficult for regulators to come up with an idea that but for that acquisition, this company in five or six years' time or ten years' time might be the next Google. And generally, they, the, the size of the companies in terms of its turnover, in terms of its market valuation, is simply too small to get above the threshold where regulators take, take a look at mergers in the first place. Now, all this
this complexity sort of is also a warning against intervention, right? I mean, we know that platforms deliver enormous value and convenience to, to consumers. What you're describing is an environment where it's very difficult to come up with simple simple solutions, and hopefully we won't see anything too, too draconian coming out of the Commission and other regulators. Well, there are disquieting elements about online platforms. The concern is that because we don't fully understand these multi-sided markets and platforms, the research on this is really about a decade old in, in economics, so and hasn't come up with any hard and fast conclusions about how best to intervene or what socially optimal outcome might be in these sorts of markets. Any sort of intervention that's based on the rules that apply to to non-platform businesses just doesn't hold in this regard. So going in with two feet, you can actually upset the delicate balance that has given us these great services that are of enormous benefit to consumers. That said, there are some disquieting elements about how these markets might develop over the next five or ten years. So there, there's a desire to want to intervene, but there's at the moment there isn't a great deal of knowledge about how best to do so. So in these cases, it's always best to tread carefully. Right. It sounds like a conversation that will go on for years to come. John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. To read our leader on digital platforms, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And don't forget, if you have any thoughts on what we've just discussed, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Now, we move on to the world's obsession with a certain ancient grey. La quinoa. La quinoa es una tipo de... Yes, that's right, quinoa. But is this sudden love for this so-called superfood hurting the countries where it is a staple? Sumeya Keynes, our economics correspondent, and keen quinoa eater, I assume, joins me now. Hello. Sumeya, first, where does this global craze for quinoa come from? Well, so scientists will be looking at this with some amusement, given that they've known about this for quite a long time. Um, in 1993, NASA even kind of considered it as a grain uh, to take on space missions. Um, so it, it's it's so amazing because it's it's a complete protein. Um, so is much more similar to kind of eggs or chicken than it is to other beans. But scientists have known about it for a while, but it really, it kind of, it took the likes of Oprah, who in, um, I think, 2008 included it in her 21-day cleanse diet. So after the fashionistas got into it, the UN jumped on the quinoa bandwagon and declared 2013 the year of the quinoa. Uh, So here's a clip of Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the UN, talking about it. I hope this international year of quinoa will be a catalyst for learning about the potential of quinoa for food and nutrition security, for reducing poverty, especially among the world's small farmers, and for environmentally sustainable agriculture. So quinoa has its fans. Everyone from Oprah to Ban Ki-moon loves it. Um, So what's the problem, given that there are so many benefits? Around 2013, essentially the global demand for quinoa had risen so quickly that supply couldn't keep up. And that meant that the price of quinoa was rising quite rapidly. It tripled over about you know three years or so. This led people in the West to worry that actually this craze was hurting the people who had been consuming it all along. Right? So they were worried that, that poor Peruvians were being priced out of their, their staple food in countries where actually poverty and, and malnutrition is quite high. This, this was, was quite a worry. Those concerns, those fears led to some, you know, alarming headlines. But actually now, later on, we, we've kind of gone back and the economic evidence suggests that there really isn't that much 
behind those worries. So first of all, quinoa was largely produced by subsistence farmers um, in Peru. They were, they were producing it to eat themselves and selling a bit on the side. So really what the quinoa boom did is it gave those farmers income. To put that in context, those farmers are the, really the poorest of the poor. They were, they were on average, consuming about two-fifths of what the you know, other Peruvians were consuming. The other thing to say is that actually, if you look at Peru as a whole, uh, quinoa was a really tiny fraction of their of their household budget. It was only on average about 0.5%, even kind of right at the end of the, the boom. And, and that is essentially part of a longer term trend. So quinoa was really, you know, a granny's staple product or, you know, eaten in porridge. It was this kind of boring thing. And really what the young kind of urban Peruvians wanted to eat was chicken burgers. It's not quite the narrative that was being spun in these alarming articles, because already, you know, it was kind of seen as this fusty old food. So so kind of funnily, once global demand started surging, actually, you know, the government started encouraging people to eat quinoa more because it wanted to tell people about their health benefits. But this idea that people were being priced out really isn't isn't the relevant story. Although, as we sort of see the see the story unfold now, it looks like some new worries are coming to the to the fore. Yes. So, in response to that really high price, essentially, this is you know a, a classic supply and demand story. Lots more producers were lured in, right? So um, you got taxi drivers in the cities going back to the countryside to start producing quinoa. You have big agribusinesses. It suddenly becomes worthwhile for them to switch one of their crops from, you know, avocados to quinoa. And, you know, even European farmers started getting in on the action. Um, everyone, you know, wanted wanted a slice of the pie, but that meant that they went quite far. And now there's a quinoa glut. There's, there's actually now more supply than than there is demand. And that means that the price has been falling quite precipitously since around 2014. So now we have this situation where farmers in Peru, farmers in Europe uh, are actually holding on to unsold quinoa stocks. They all went in when the price was really high and now the price has plummeted. You know, they don't want to sell the quinoa at that price. OK, so where does that leave those those producers? They've, they're sitting on all this quinoa they have new competition, prices are dropping, this is bad news, clearly. The other thing to do is, is to bear in mind that the older producers of quinoa, these subsistence farmers who are producing it in the mountains, they're very different to these new producers who are you know, using modern farming techniques and who are often you know, just better positioned to get higher yields of their quinoa. They can have two harvests a year, whereas in the mountains, really they were growing quinoa there because nothing else would grow. So these older producers... On price alone, it's just really unlikely that they can compete um, with the new the new producers, and and that's a worry in the long run. Um, if you look at the price now, it's about um, two dollars per kilogram of quinoa, and the fair trade price, which is you know the price that uh, the fair trade organisation works out, which is the amount required to give people a decent standard of living, um, that's around two dollars sixty, right? So that the price is now below that that required to give them a minimum living standard. So you worry that in the long run. If the market for quinoa has just fundamentally been changed, then these farmers can't compete on price anymore. Um, so, that, you know, there is a solution. They could try and kind of carve out their own niche in the market, maybe go for kind of organic consumers, you know, market themselves as the authentic quinoa producers. But that's that's really hard. Or another fashionable grain is going to come along and knock quinoa off its perch. I think if I was a farmer on the Andean mountains where really nothing else would grow, I would not think it would be very likely that this this global interest in quinoa would go away. 
And I would be in a pickle because really thinking of an alternative crop. Okay, quinoa in a pickle. On that thought, Sumaya Keynes, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. And in addition to our report on quinoa's effect on local farms, you can find an explainer on why the grains price recently took a tumble on our website at economist.com. I'm Andrew Palmer. Do join us again next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.